My soul is so weary with sorrow. Has the Lord forgotten to be gracious? Has his mercy gone forever? You are God. You do wondrous things, for you are good. And it's to you that I sing your compassion and your mercy cannot be understood for you are God like no other God and you are good Jesus Messiah has come to you offering healing and comfort with with you now and ever. You are God. You do wondrous things for you are good. And it's to you that I sing. Your compassion and your mercy cannot be understood for you are God. Like no other God. Peace is not in understanding. Peace is knowing who you are. You're the God of wonders. Mighty are your deeds. Help my soul to trust in you, my King. Passion and your mercy cannot be understood, O oh God. And you song was written by Matthew Clemens. Um, he was, I believe, dying of cancer. And he wrote those words. His wife, two weeks later after he passed away, found those words on an audio recording on his phone. And so they took them, created the chorus, and wrote the rest of the song there to fill that out for him. Um, but it's based on Psalm 77, which, Luke, I've talked about this. We don't have any lament songs in our repertoire. Psalm 77 is a lament psalm. And I just wanted to read a few verses before we dismiss the kids from Psalm 77. We'll start in verse number 6. <clears throat> Psalm 77, verse number 6. It says, I call to remembrance my song in the night. I commune with mine own heart, and my spirit made diligent search. Will the Lord cast off forever? And will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Doth his promises fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Selah. And I said, this is mine infirmity, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of thy doings. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? Thou art the God that doest wonders, and thou hast declared thy strength among the people. Thou hast with thine arm redeemed thy people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. Okay, kids, we're going to go ahead and dismiss you for Children's Church, four years old through fourth grade. 
While they're heading out, go and turn to Acts chapter number 18. Acts chapter number 18. I think songs like that are necessary in our Christianity because there is a whole philosophy of how to deal with grief in Christianity, and it's wrong. The Christians are wrong, the world's wrong. The Bible gave us the answer for how to deal with grief. It's right there in the Word of God. We just don't go back to it. We don't, we don't analyze it. And that psalm is a perfect example of exactly how we should process grief in our lives. Acts chapter 18 is not going to be about that topic. But uh, we are going to, there is an, a little bit of overlap here, somewhat. But Acts chapter 18, uh, we had read verses 1 through 11. Paul has just left the cities of Thessalonica, um, Berea, and then Athens. And now he is coming into the city of Corinth. And in this text, we're going to see one central lesson, that life doesn't always go the way that we planned it. And that can be even more the case when it comes to ministry. I've known many Bible college students. I could probably add, add the, there's probably more that I can add in this category than I could think of actually went into ministry afterwards. But I could think of so many Bible college students who are rearing to go in Bible college, and then life seems to have caught up with them. And they never ended up doing what they said they were going to do. They never ended up going where they said they were going to go. Most of them are in their college town still to this day. And my own example of being a missionary in Northeast India is an example of this very thing. Sometimes God redirects our paths and puts us on a different path than we thought that we were going to be on. And it's those moments that we can tend to feel discouraged, fearful, or that we can give up because we don't know what's happening. This morning we're going to be talking about when ministry doesn't go the way that you thought it should go. And when I use that word... I want you to understand what I mean by it. Because if, you, if you're thinking what you're probably thinking right now, you're thinking this only applies to Pastor Carsey's and Jason, maybe Luke, and maybe David, right? That's probably what you're thinking. But ministry is more than just the full-time ministries that we talk about. It's more than just being a preacher or a missionary or an evangelist or a, or a music leader. It is more than those things. Ministry is any, anything that I've poured my heart out into and my soul into in the service of God. That is true ministry. And all of us can do that. We can all serve God in different ways. And so that when we talk about disappointment in ministry, this applies to all kinds of areas of life. Sunday school teachers, nursery workers, those who do evangelism or participate in outreach programs, the choir, secretarial, janitorial things. But to be honest, as believers, when we go out into our workplace, that is also ministry, if we are doing it for the glory of God, to serve him. And so every area of our life is encompassed by this term. And, and as we face the little disappointments in life, th throughout the things that we do, we can eventually grow to be, they can eventually grow to become bigger disappointments in our life and cause problems in, in, in our walk with the Lord. Think of maybe a project that you've worked on that gets scrapped. Okay, you put all your effort into this thing, and the boss doesn't like it. They throw it away, and it's gone, right? Okay? Or people that you're depending on, but they're flaky, and so you're left scrambling to get things done. Is that a, that's a disappointment in life. Things didn't go the way that you thought they would go. I could, I could imagine, actually, I've been here, okay? So imagine being a pastor, and you've got the whole service planned, and then you find out 10 minutes before the service somebody's not going to be there, and you've got to scramble to find somebody to cover for them, right? Okay? But I'm not just the only one who has to do stuff like that. And those are, those are disappointments in life that can, that can change the way things we thought would happen. Imagine getting up and speaking, no one, and no one seems to respond to your hours of preparation for your Sunday school lesson or your sermon that you've put in, in all this work that you've put into it. Or your contributions in ministry tend to be overlooked because maybe it's something that people don't naturally look at as ministry. <clears throat> or maybe you feel alone in ministry, right? There aren't a whole lot of good, solid Baptist churches in Oklahoma. It can be easy to feel alone in ministry. Or you feel sidelined from what you plan to do your whole life. 
That was me when I came back from India, right? From the point of, I got saved at nine years old, and uh, sometime in that same year, God put it on my heart to be a missionary. That was all I ever dreamed of being. That was all I ever prepared to be my entire life. And then I get to India, and I get kicked out of the country. And it's like, I'm being sidelined. That, that honestly was one of my biggest struggles coming back to the States because my identity was tied up in that. Everything about me was tied up in that. And here I am stuck in Virginia, not able to do it. You know? And, and that, those moments in our lives where we don't do, where we, things don't work out the way that we thought they would are oftentimes moments of despair where we can lose hope, we can lose our trust, we can lose our faith. And when you think of Paul, as the Apostle Paul. Most of us think of a man who is brave, right? Imagine going and preaching to people that you know are going to throw stones at you and uh, try to kill you and reject you. <clears throat> and, and that's our image of Paul. And honestly, it's a good image of Paul, but that isn't the only image of Paul that we have. That isn't what Paul was like all the time. Our text actually gives us a glimpse into the heart of Paul. Nathan read through the, the overall context, but I want to look at verse 11 real quick, just to introduce our topic here. In verse 11, sorry, let's go back to, let's just read verse 9. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision. What did he say? Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace. For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. For I have much people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God. In verse number nine, God starts off and he commands Paul three things. Be not afraid, speak, and hold not thy peace. The wording of that phrase, be not afraid, is literally stop being afraid. This wasn't a precautionary warning. This wasn't saying, Paul, when you go and you preach, don't be scared. That's all right, don't be scared. Don't, don't, don't worry about the future. That's not what God's saying here. God's saying, stop being afraid, because Paul right then and there was afraid, and we'll talk about why as, as we go into the text. But you don't tell somebody to stop something if they haven't started doing it, right? Okay, um, Chloe, I want you to stop dyeing your hair purple. She doesn't dye her hair purple, right? Okay, what's the point of telling her to stop doing something if she's never done it? Mr. Tillman's over there looking like, I want to dye my hair purple too, right? No, okay, so, but you don't tell people to stop doing something if they aren't even doing it to begin with, and that's what God is saying here. And Paul even describes his heart in Corinth when we turn, let's turn over real quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter number two. 1 Corinthians chapter number two and verse number three. It would make sense that while Paul's in Corinth and he writes a letter to the Corinthians, he would talk about what he felt like while he was there. Maybe a little bit, right? 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3. says, And I was with you. How was he with them? In weakness and in fear and in much trembling. This is the heart of Paul at this moment in our text right here. I'm just trying to lay this foundation that as we go through the text, why Paul is afraid, but the important thing in this text is to see that ministry didn't go the way that Paul anticipated it to be. Things didn't go according to plan. He was scared of what the future held. So I think we can learn some things from the example of Paul in those moments of disappointment and discouragement when things don't go according to the plans that we have set up, that we have expected for our lives. So let's jump into Acts chapter number 8. We'll start in verse number one here. It says, and after these things, Acts chapter 18, verse number one. And after these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome and came unto them. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. First thing I want to look at here with the example of Paul, when ministry didn't go according to plan, Paul was willing to become bivocational in order to keep serving God. And I'll, I'll, I'll mention why that's important in a second here. But when Paul leaves Athens, it seems as if he does it alone. He's by himself. He comes to the city of Corinth, 
which in our Bibles, this is a city that gets a lot of attention. There are two cities that were probably the most influential cities that Paul went to other than Rome. Okay? Those were Corinth and Ephesus. Corinth was a city on an isthmus surrounded by ports on both sides. And it was a, a trade route going north to south as well. And so a lot of wealth came in there. It was free. It was influential. It was, it was a very prosperous city. But as Paul comes into Corinth, we find that he did not have that support to live off of that he had had in other cities, right? Paul is lacking something. He's lacking finances to do the ministry. That's not what Paul would have anticipated, right? So what does Paul do because he is lacking these finances? Paul, honestly, he would love to be out there preaching every single day, but he finds that he has to provide a living somehow. In verses 2 through 3, Paul finds two people, Aquila and Priscilla, and these people will show up again in other passages. They are very, very influential in early Christianity. But Aquila and Priscilla were Jews from Rome. According to the verse, they'd been kicked out of Rome. Emperor Claudius. Most likely this is in AD 49, if you want the historical data here. Um, they were kicked out in AD 49 by Emperor Claudius. Early on in Claudius's reign, he had been actually friendly to the Jews. There was a dispute between the Jews and Alexandria and the Greeks there, and Claudius actually took steps to resolve the problem. He didn't, he didn't persecute the Jews early on. But later on, he decides that he's going to kick out the Jews. And so the question is, why? Why did he do that? There is evidence around this time that the Jews were expelled from Rome because of a man named Christus. And most people believe that this is Jesus Christ, that this, these are the Christians that were, in a way, they were causing problems because they were upsetting culture. And, the way they, and they were causing conflict between Jews and the society of Rome. And so the belief here is that Christians had, not on purpose, but had caused by very nature of who they were, problems in Rome, and Emperor Claudius kicked them out. And so when we have Aquila and Priscilla, they've been kicked out of Rome, and they come to the city of Corinth here, and they are working. They are, they are working to provide a living for themselves. And verse 3, because Paul needed this support... And because he was of the same craft, meaning he did the same things that they did, he joins with Aquila and Priscilla in the business of tent making. The last phrase here says, for by their occupation, they were tent makers. Now, there's all kinds of tents I saw when we were on this camp out. Like Daniel had one that had maybe that much actual canvas and the rest of it was all nets and everything like that over the top of it. And then you got the big ones like Luke and I had that could house 10 to 12 people inside of them, have dividers and everything. Um, but that's not the type of tent that Paul was making, right? He was not stitching uh, plastic fabric together <laughs> to make a tent. But Paul's work with tent making most likely involved leather work and things like that. But Paul had been occupied in this trade at some point in his life. Before ministry, this is what Paul did. And so he knows that if he's going to survive in the city of Corinth, he's going to have to pick up this trade again to support himself. But why did Paul make the decision to work with his own hands to make money in Corinth? We are given two reasons in, in the Bible. First one is going to be found in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 9. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 9. <clears throat> First Thessalonians 2, verse 9. It says, For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Now, obviously, this is written to the Thessalonians, but it gives us the motivation for why Paul worked. He, one of his reasons for working is because he did not want to become a burden to the people that he was ministering to. He was willing to work with his own hands so that he could be a blessing and not a hindrance to them. And Paul wanted to do something for God, but he didn't want his work for God to become a burden to people. And I think maybe the churches, they couldn't afford it, right? Maybe they couldn't, because a lot of times Christians were not from the rich classes. They were from the poor classes. 
Or maybe there were other things that the church needed to do with the finances that they had. These are baby churches that are, that are existing in these cities at this time. But Paul didn't want to add extra stress to their lives. So he made this decision. The second reason is in 1 Corinthians 9. And because it's in the book of 1 Corinthians, this is probably more likely the primary reason that Paul did this in the city of Corinth. 1 Corinthians 9, verse number 18 <clears throat> what is my reward then? Okay, this is a passage talking about Paul's right to receive support. Okay, but he says, what is my reward then? Verily, that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. I think the concept here is that, that Paul wanted to make the gospel to be without charge, to be free, as it is. The gospel is a gift from God. It is not something you pay to get, right? You don't do a certain set of things to get salvation, but the gospel is free. And in those days, there were, there were speakers, there were philosophers who would come through, and they would declare their messages, but they would want a fee in return for it. And Paul did not want to have the gospel be accused of being something that was for hire. How many of you ever heard that uh, preachers are just in it for the money? Anybody? Yeah, that's out there. Is it true? Sometimes. Sometimes. Joel Steen, definitely. Okay, there are preachers who are in it for the money. But that, is, that, that isn't right, and Paul didn't want that to be the accusation against the gospel. The ministry is service. And sometimes people can get it stuck in their head that this is for money. But what, and so the question here is this, is would you serve without pay? Would you serve without pay? And the honest truth is, many of you do every single week, right? You come in here and you serve God without pay. But Paul doesn't assume that he must receive outside support if he is going to do a work for God. And I think this is why this is important. He was willing to do bivocational ministry so that he could, he could still be, be serving God. Being bivocational at the time was a means to an end. He didn't become so preoccupied with life that his ministry drifted off. Okay? So when Paul, he has to step back. He has to get a job. He has to work to survive. But did that keep him from doing ministry? No, it didn't. He still continued to preach the gospel. He looked at his, his work as an opportunity to fund his ministry, not the other way around. He knew that God had called him, what God had called him to do, and he was going to keep on pursuing that even when it became harder. So when things didn't work out the way he wanted to, when he had to step back and he had to get a job to support himself, Paul still continued preaching the gospel. The second thing we're going to see here is that he remained faithful to preach the gospel. Acts chapter 18, and let's look at verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. Okay, so here Paul is continuing to reason in the synagogues every single Sabbath day and to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. He's preaching the gospel to them faithfully, even while being bivocational. But notice in verse number 5, And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. Eventually, support did come. Okay? He didn't continue working as a tent maker the entire time he was in Corinth. Silas and Timothy returned from a trip throughout the churches of Macedonia who gave support. One of those churches we know is Philippi. Philippi supported Paul's ministry. But obviously, bivocational ministry is not the ideal. This, this support freed Paul up to be more focused on ministry. The verse, verse number five here says, Paul was pressed in the spirit, okay? This phrase comes from the idea of being fully engaged in or become fully occupied by. So the spirit convinced him to become fully engaged in the work of the ministry. And so with this newfound freedom, Paul gave himself completely to the work of God. No more tent making at this point. Paul was consumed, and what was he consumed with? He was consumed with preaching Christ. In, in the verse it says, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews 
that Jesus was the Christ. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5 says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is, this is key to what I want to point out about Paul. Paul was faithful. He was faithful. He didn't quit. He didn't give up. He, didn't, he wasn't flaky. He was dependable. When things didn't go the way that he planned them to go, he still remained faithful. When things change in our lives, become more difficult, oftentimes we slack off, Right? We start neglecting the things that we should be doing. We let things go that we shouldn't let go. We fail to meet our responsibilities and our obligations. Now, I think there is a time to step back from some things when you have higher priorities that need to be met. Okay, That's not what I'm saying here. But faithfulness is doing what you are supposed to be doing no matter what. Being dependable, being trustworthy. Proverbs 25, verse 19, uses an illustration that I think is so, so good. It says, confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a broken tooth and a foot out of joint, okay? Um, any of you who have had hip replacement or knee replacement or any of these things, you can empathize with this, right? When, when Luke jumped in the volleyball court expecting to get the volleyball, what happened? His knee blew out, and what happened to Luke? Down he went, right? Okay. When you depend on an untrustworthy joint in your body, you fall down. That bad things happen, right? And so confidence in an unfaithful man, an untrustworthy person, an undependable person is like leaning on a broken foot. It causes pain and it causes you to fall down. <clears throat> and so you expect them to be there to prop you up, but you fall because they aren't functioning the way that they should. Paul was faithful. God could depend on him to continue to preach the gospel. It's easy to let things slip when we face disappointment and plans don't go the way that we expected them to. But it is in those times that we must remain faithful. Honestly, can you really say you are faithful if you only ever do the right things when it's easy? Is that really faithfulness? No, it's not. It's, it's just habit at that point. It's just, it works to do this now. Faithfulness only matters when it isn't easy, when things aren't the way that you expected them to be. And it's at these times sometimes that we make really bad decisions in those moments of waiting, when we're discouraged, when, we're, when things have, have happened that aren't according to our plans, and we are too eager to do something else. I almost made a decision like this in ministry in my life. In fact, I did make a decision like this, but God rescued me from it, okay? That time that I, during that, that period when I was kicked out of India, um, when we were waiting, and I had no clear guidance from God on what to do. I couldn't go back to India. I was trying to work with refugees, and it wasn't working. Nothing was happening, because the Jehovah Witnesses had more ac access to them than I did. Okay, I can give all kinds of reasons, but ultimately it wasn't working. And God was not saying, hey, do this, or go here, go, or, or do this thing. I had no clear direction. And so you know what? I got antsy. I got eager to do something else at that time. And what I did is I applied for police academy. And I got in. Okay, I passed all the interviews. Surprisingly, not looking at me now, I passed the physicals. Okay, I passed the polygraph. I passed the psych evaluations and all these big hoops. Could you imagine being hooked up to a polygraph machine and being asked, do you have any secrets that you are afraid to tell anybody and tell us what those are? Can you imagine being hooked up to a polygraph with that question right there? Anyways, but I went through all of this, and I got into police academy, right? But the whole first week that I was in there, God kept hounding me with this thought. If you do this, you are giving up on everything that I have planned for you and everything that I've been preparing you for your entire life. So I dropped, dropped out of police academy, and I got back to preparing the way for ministry. And it was soon after that that the Lord led us here. He gave us the guidance that we needed. 
I, I still wasn't able to do full-time ministry when I got here, but you know what? And I'm, I'm not saying this to exalt myself, but just as an example, I didn't let that keep me from being involved in ministry. Just because I was no longer in full-time ministry, I didn't just say, I'm done. I'll just work at Chick-fil-A and be happy, fat and happy at Chick-fil-A. That's not how I approached David's over there laughing. So I did get fat, okay, but so, yeah. <laughs> but that wasn't the way I approached things. I didn't just accept that. I, the Lord had a plan for my life, and I knew what it was, and I was going to be involved in it no matter what. I was going to be faithful to do what he called me to do. And so I want to encourage you this morning not to give up when things get hard. When they don't go the way that you think. Sometimes the path of the Lord is not A to B like we think. Sometimes it's A to B to C to D to get us to where we need to actually be in our lives. I think part of that is he's trying to grow us. He's trying to teach us through the experiences of our lives. And the burdens of life can sometimes weigh us down. So maybe, maybe we do need to step back from some things to prioritize other things. But, but don't give up on serving God your vision for what God wants you to do in your life. Stay faithful to him. Goes on in verse number six, and it, and it talks about some of the opposition that Paul was going to face. Verse six says, and when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth, I will go unto the Gentiles. And he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. So the third thing we see here is that God encouraged Paul not to give up just because of an initial negative response. Okay? When Paul preaches the gospel to these Jews, verse 6 starts off and says, they opposed themselves. And it's kind of awkward in English, but that phrase basically means this, that they, opposed them, they set themselves in opposition to Paul. And in a way, they were opposing their own selves because this was to their own detriment, right? But they set themselves in opposition to Paul, and they blasphemed. <clears throat> so Paul runs into obstacles, and he runs into resistance. He's trying to do what God wants him to do, but there is resistance. There is a negative response to it. And so in verse 6, they oppose themselves to Paul. This is an organized effort to resist what Paul was preaching. Not everybody's going to be receptive to your ministry. And there may, may be times when people fight against what you are trying to do. These Jews didn't like what Paul was trying to do, right? They didn't like that. So they organized a resistance to it. And then it says they blasphemed. I think this, you could take this one of two ways. You could take this as they slandered Paul, right? Oftentimes when people don't like what you are doing, their first reaction out of a need to justify themselves is to attack you personally, right? That's how they handle disagreements. I don't agree with so-and-so because so-and-so is a horrible person, and you got to believe me, you got to trust me because of what I say about this person, right? So their first attack is usually a personal attack. They think that by attacking you, they can silence you, or in some way that that disproves your argument. In debate, we call this an ad hominem attack. Is an ad hominem attack an effective tactic of, of debating? Does it really actually prove anything? No, it doesn't, right? But the word blasphemed may not be just an attack on Paul. I think it could be an attack on Jesus Christ as well. And I think that would be even more important than an attack on Paul. So when Paul was faced with opposition from people with hard hearts, he responded in three ways in this text. First thing it says here is he shook his raiment, okay? He shook his raiment. This action is, re is related to a scene from the book of Nehemiah. Let's go and turn there. Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter number 5. <clears throat> Nehemiah 5, starting in, let's do 12 and 13 here. Nehemiah 5, verse 12. Then said they, we will restore them and will require nothing of them. So will we do as thou sayest. Then I called the priests and took an oath of them 
that they should do according to this promise. Also I shook my lap and said, So God shake out every man from his house and from his labor that performeth not this promise. Even thus be he shaken out and emptied. And all the congregation said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did according to this promise. A lot of people have tied in this idea where Jesus told us, if people don't listen to you, when you enter into a city, you are to shake the dust off of your feet because of that, right? That's good, but it's not the exact thing that's happening here, right? What is it that he does? He shakes his raiment off, as Nehemiah did. And what, what was the purpose of Nehemiah shaking his raiment? In a way, this was a promise of judgment. If you don't keep this promise, as you have said you will, God is going to judge you. So when, when Paul shakes his garment, he is promising judgment on these people. Let's turn back to Acts chapter 18. So it was an action of a promise of judgment on them because they have, they have rejected, they have opposed themselves to the gospel and they have blasphemed. He shakes his garment and he said, says unto them, your blood be upon your own heads. That is a reference to Ezekiel 33 verses 1 through 5, which says, Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of thy people, and say unto them, When I bring the sword upon a land, if the people of that land take a man of their coast and set him for their watchmen, if when he seeth the sword come upon the land, he blow the trumpet and warn the people, then whosoever heareth the sound of the trumpet and taketh not warning, if the sword come and take him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and took not warning. His blood shall be upon him, but he that taketh warning shall deliver his soul. I think this is very important because Paul is tying the, the action of giving the gospel to people to this passage in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 33 is all about when you see danger coming, there is a watchman, and the watchman is to blow a trumpet to warn the people. And if the people hear the trumpet and they, and they are warned, they are saved. But if they hear the trumpet and they ignore it, their blood is on their own head. But in, embedded in that passage is also this conclusion. If the watchman sees the danger and he does not blow the trumpet, the blood is on his head, not on the heads of the people. That's Ezekiel 33. And Paul is tying this in with the sharing of the gospel. He has shared the gospel with these people. He has preached to them. He has blown the trumpet but what did they do? They ignored the trumpet. And so the blood, their blood, is on their own head. When we have the message of salvation and reconciliation, when we know that danger is coming, and we don't warn others about that danger, the implications of Paul's usage of this verse is that we will be held responsible for their souls and their blood in some way. But when we have warned and witnessed and they refuse, God will hold them accountable. Paul concludes in, in, this, in this passage here, and he says, I am clean. Sorry, he says, your blood be upon your own head, I am clean. God has not called us to make believers of everybody. We can't do that, but he has called us to preach the gospel, to blow the trumpet, to warn them. And if we don't do that, we are accountable to God, and their blood is on our hands. So Paul, says, Paul promises judgment by shaking his raiment. He says, your blood is on your own head because you have ignored the warning. And then the third thing he does is he worked with those who wanted to hear. In the, in the last phrase he says, from henceforth, I will go unto the Gentiles. When faced with opposition, Paul turned to those who wanted to hear, to the Gentiles. This reminds me of the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 7, verse 6, when he says, give not that which is holy unto the dogs, Neither cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them underfoot and turn again and rend you. Why shouldn't we cast pearls to swine? They can't appreciate it, right? They don't, they don't want it. Uh, hopefully, if you have a pet pig, you don't go buy a pearl necklace for it. If it was a cow, I was going to think Rachel, but no. A pet pig, you're not going to go buy a pearl necklace for this pet pig because it has no appreciation of what is being offered to it. So Paul turns and he says, you've rejected fine, I'm going to go and I'm going to preach to those who want to hear and who are ready to hear. And he turns to the Gentiles. Verse number seven. 
And he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. That first phrase when it says, when he departed thence, that does not mean he left Corinth. Rather, it means he left Aquila and Priscilla's house, and he entered into Crispus's house. He switched places to live, okay? But Crispus, or Justice here, sorry, not Crispus, Justice was, was a man who worshipped God. I believe this indicates he was a Gentile who worshipped God. He was a God follower. He was a proselyte of the Jewish religion who lived right next to the synagogue. And so he moves in with Justice. And verse 8 introduces a significant character because Crispus is the chief ruler of the synagogue. The chief ruler of the synagogue is the rabbi in charge, right? He's the one in charge of everything that happens in this synagogue. This is an important figure in Corinth, is a man of importance. His conversion would likely have caused problems, especially when we take into account the Jews have already decided they're opposed to Paul, but their rabbi has converted. Paul is potentially facing another situation like what happened in Thessalonica, where he was stoned and left for dead, right? And when persecution had come up in the past, Paul had moved on to other towns, right? That's generally what he did. And as I mentioned in the introduction, Paul is scared. Sometimes I think we dehumanize Bible characters. We forget that they are human beings with human emotions and human passions. Think of James 5 talks about Elijah having like passions, like us, right? They felt the things that we would have felt in that situation. They struggled with the things that we would have struggled with in that situation. And Paul is scared. Honestly, wouldn't you be scared if the Jones, if the not the Jones, the Jews had stoned you in another city and left you for dead. And now you're in this city and things aren't starting to shape up very well, right? Things are starting to look a little bit dangerous. Wouldn't you be scared that the same thing's going to happen? And maybe this time they might just be successful, right? That's Paul right now. He's scared of this opposition. And in a moment And it is at these moments of weakness in Paul that God comes to him and God speaks to him. Verse 9 says, Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision. So God comes to him and he speaks, and he speaks what kind of words? He speaks words of encouragement. He commands him, but he encourages him. I think of 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 through 10. We talked about this recently on Wednesday. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in mine infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God comes to Paul, and God becomes Paul's strength to continue on in the city of Corinth. Like I said, normally... Paul would have moved to another city at this point. That's just how he tended to do things. But God comes to him and tells him to stay. God commands him to not to stop being afraid. But then he gives us reasons why in verse number 10. He gives us three reasons why. First of all, why should you not be afraid? For I am with thee. God promises to be with Paul. As he is obeying God and he is serving God, God promises not to leave him. And in our hardest, our darkest moments, when things didn't seem to go according to the plan that we had for our lives, God promises to be with us. Think of Matthew 28, 19 through 20. As we go and give the gospel, God says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, right? His first encouragement here is, I am with thee. God's presence is, is honestly, it's most oftentimes deeper felt in those moments than in the moments when everything is going according to plan and everything is good. God comes to us in a special way at those times and we, we, we have a deeper fellowship with him or we can have a deeper fellowship with him in those moments. And so when we are, when we are having issues crop up that have changed our plans, they seem to have... Uh, Uh, squashed every vision that we ever had for our lives. It's in those moments that we should look for God to be there with us, for God's presence in our lives, and for that fellowship with him. So he says, first of all, for I am with thee. Secondly, 
No man shall set on thee to hurt thee. So God, is, God promises Paul, I'm not going to let them attack you. I'm not going to let them hurt you. That's what God promises. God is ultimately going to take care of you. Obviously, I don't think that God promised this for all of Paul's life, right? He didn't promise that nobody's ever going to hurt you for all of Paul's life. And he doesn't promise this necessarily for every Christian either, that nobody will ever hurt you. I think Jim Elliott would have loved to have heard that promise, don't you? Right? That's, that's not how things are. And, and Paul, how would Paul eventually die? He was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, he was beheaded by Nero, according to Eusebius. Paul was killed eventually. But when I think of promises like this, I think of a quote by John Patton. John Patton was a missionary in the New Hebrides Islands to cannibals. Okay? And he says this, I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. The assurance came to me as of a voice heaven had spoken that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevail to spi sp sp yeah, strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ, whose is all power in heaven and on earth. He rules all nature, animate and inanimate, and restrains even the savages of the South Seas. Eventually, John Patton was eaten by the cannibals. But that entire island got saved and became Christians because of his ministry. But he realized there was nothing to fear because as long as I am doing what God wants me to do, he will take care of me. I am, in his words, I am immortal until the master's work is done in my life. Because no man can hurt me if God has decided that he is going to protect and take care of me. And so as a believer, as we go through these moments where plans don't go the way that we want them to, we should know that if we are faithful and we are steadfast in pursuing what God wants us to do, God will take care of us. So first of all, he promises to be with him. He promises to take care of them. The third thing he promises here, he says in the last phrase, for I have much people in this city. There are many in Corinth who would eventually get saved. And I think this is encouraging because in this moment, we may not see the results right away. We, we can't necessarily look at all the Christians that have been saved in Corinth and say, God's doing a great work here. Rather, the Jews are opposing him. There's a negative response. They're rejecting him. But God promises to Paul that there will be many people saved because of his ministry in the city of Corinth. So we may not see results right now. And it is easy to get discouraged. Uh, especially people with my spiritual gift, we're susceptible to this, right? Because we want to see people grow in their faith, and that means we've got to see the evidence of growth, right? Some of you, you you're perfectly happy just, I'm going to speak the truth and you guys can deal with it, right? But people with my spiritual gift, we have to see the results a lot of times. And that sometimes shakes us. But God allowed Paul to see further than the immediate. He wasn't just focused on the here and now with what was available right now. Rather, God says, by looking forward to what, what God was going to do, but has not done yet, Paul could take comfort. There were many people who would eventually be saved in the city of Paul. And as far as we know, the city, not the city of Paul, the city of Corinth. And as far as we know, Paul spent a lot of time ministering to these people. In fact, there are records that there were actually four letters written to the Corinthians. Four letters. Out of all the other churches that are out there who got one, Corinth got four churches. That might be a bad thing because they needed those four letters, right? But God was going to do a great work in the city of Corinth. And verse 11 says, And he continued there a year and six months. Eighteen months, a year and a half, teaching the word of God among them. And in that eighteen months, no one ever came and attacked Paul. No one ever came and killed Paul. God was faithful to keep his word and to do what he said he would do. Ecclesiastes 11 verse 5 says, As thou knowest not what is the way of the Spirit, nor how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child, even so thou knowest not the works of God who maketh all. We don't know the end of our journey. This obstacle right now that we are facing, it may seem like a mountain in, in, in our path that we can't get around, but we do not know what God in, plans for our lives. 
When the road takes turns that we did not expect, we should trust God who set us on the path that we are on. Paul received strength and comfort to continue on because he knew God was with him. He knew God would take care of him. And he knew that God's plans would never fail. My plans, they might fail. But God's plans will never fail. Isaiah 55 verses 8 through 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. This is God's thoughts. They're not man's thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God has a greater plan for our lives than what we could ever come up for ourselves. When you're tempted to give up, don't quit. Be faithful and find your courage by remembering that God is with you. He will take care of you and his plans never end. I want to close with these words by Minnie Haskins. She was a um, missionary in China from poem, The Gate of the Year. I think I've read it before, but I think it's helpful to be reminded of these words throughout our lives. This is what her poem says. And I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be better than light and safer than a known way. So I went forth and finding the hand of God, trod gladly into the night. And he led me toward the hills and the breaking of the day in the lone east. So heart be still, what need our little life, our human life to know, if God hath comprehension. All the dizzying strife of things both high and low, God hideth his intention. God knows, his will is best. The stretch of years which wind ahead so dim to our imperfect vision are clear to God. Our fears are premature. In him, at times, hath full provision. Then rest until God moves to lift the veil from our impatient eyes. When as the sweeter features of life's stern face we hail, fair beyond all surmise, God's thought around his creatures, our mind shall fill. Which challenges us that we can step out into the darkness of plans that have been shaken and disrupted, knowing that God knows the course that lies ahead, even if we can't see it. Let's all stand for an invitation this morning. There are many ways we could apply this text to our lives. Are we being faithful to God?